We're in a wonderful place in Scripture. By the way, the uh, cards that West, Pastor West was telling you about are really important. They're critical. Uh, it will save us a lot of money. It will save us a lot of uh, time, too, because we can communicate as quickly as possible. And so please uh, do that for us. Fill that out. And, and thank you so much for being here. This is a glorious day. It's a wonderful place in Scripture. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24 and 25. This week, as I was reading through it and trying to figure out what we're we going to say, it seemed like just a narrative. It was uh, just a statement of, uh, of our Lord uh, having Paul wait two years. And then what we're going to see is the transition from, from Felix to Festus. And then Festus is going to hand Paul off to King Agrippa. As we noted last week in chapter 24, we saw that Felix was frightened. And what he was frightened by was what we saw in verse 25. If you look back, I just think we need to take a look at this for a moment. In verse 25, it says that Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I'm going to summon you. Felix became frightened because... What Paul taught him is what the Scripture has to say about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Righteousness, as we know from the Word of God, comes only through Jesus Christ. So what Paul was telling Felix and Drusilla's wife is that they are not righteous in and of themselves. So therefore, they have to control themselves. They have to have self-control. But he is saying that none of us are righteous, none of us are without sin and so you come into this whole event needing a savior if you do not choose to have a savior if you try to have your own righteousness and your own self-control then there is a judgment that is going to come and fall upon every person on the face of this earth when he got to that part felix was so overwhelmed by the prospect of his own fate that he became frightened saying, go on, get out of here. I've heard enough. History tells us, as far as we know, that Festus never, or Felix, excuse me, Felix never ever gave his heart to Jesus Christ, as far as we know. And two years later, we see that he is succeeded by Festus. These two years that speaks of in Scripture that Paul is in prison are silent in the years of Paul. What happened during these days, we're not certain. I believe he was writing. But what we do know is this. God's hand was upon Paul in all that he was doing. All of this time, God's purposes were being carried out in and through the life of Paul, even in these silent times, even when he is in prison. Kay and I, I I asked Kay about this. I said, what do you think? Kay's my wife. I said, what do you think about, about these two years? What does it, what strikes you? And she said immediately, it it strikes me that it's strange that God might have used his best communicator, his best evangelist, and put him on the shelf for two years. Why wouldn't God have allowed Paul out there doing all of the speaking and all of the work that he could do? And so it, it dawned on, on, on us to, to realize that when our activities seem to come to a standstill, God is still at work within our lives. He is still going to fulfill His purpose in and through us 
when it looks like we're on the shelf. That might be for some of us here. Some of us feel, I don't feel a niche. I don't feel that I know what God wants me to do. I don't know what race I'm supposed to be in. And you keep talking of it, Pastor. And then you brag, like you know what you're going to (laughs) do. What about us, you know? And if that sounds like I'm bragging, it's not. It's not at all. It's just a a process of time. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28 with me for a moment. Paul wrote these words in this particular place in Scripture. I think concerning all of this time that he spent doing what he thought was perhaps menial. I mean, really, I don't think, I said this to you last week, I don't think for a second that Paul knew the scope of what his letters that he wrote were going to do for the cause of Christ. I don't think so, but I don't know. Maybe the Lord let him know that this is going to reach people beyond your generation. I don't know. But I do know that Paul was faithful. And Paul wrote in Romans 8.28, we know something. We know that God causes all things to work together for what? For good. But he has a qualifying to that. It is for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to what? According to his purpose. It's not Paul's purpose. You see, that's the key, I think, in all of this. I think the key for Paul's life is that he never thought it was his purpose to do whatever was going to be done. I think Paul had a real grasp that that he was waiting upon God in God's timing. I've asked you often to memorize a, a, a couple of verses. One in particular is in, 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 in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt you at the what? Proper time. Very good. Very good. That He would exalt you at the proper time. That proper time is His time. The next verse says this, Cast all your cares. In other words, any of your anxieties, cast it upon Him because He cares for you and me. That's a great place in Scripture because as we're at this place of waiting, what is God going to do in and through our lives? Well, He's going to cause all of this to work together for good if you love Him, as you're called according to His purpose. One of the questions... I get perhaps more than than any other being in the ministry, especially that I was a I was like so ill prepared to be a pastor. If you look at all of the qualities that I might have or or not have, the not haves really far outweighed any of the haves. I had no seminary training. Um, I was just a worn out old ball player, and 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 got called into ministry and and felt a strong call, but felt overwhelmed by what to do. Um, And one of the questions I get because of, I think, my background is young men will come to me and say, how could we become a pastor? How could could I start a church and and see it grow? And I, I ask them one question always, are you willing to wait upon the hand of God? And they'll say, well, you know, I've, I've got so many ideas and I, and, and I, I just want to start, start right away. And I, I said, wait, wait one second. When God called me into ministry for the first, I think, seven years, 
I never gave one message. I was called to do a ministry with, with professional athletes and their wives. And, and my best quality that I had was that I sat baseball for both the Dodgers and the Angels. I didn't play much. I sat a lot. Watched. Had a great seat. Got to see what was going on. And I watched these games. And because of that, I knew both the managers of the teams. I knew many of the players. More importantly, I, I knew Mr. O'Malley and Mr. Autry. Those were the owners of the team. And so when, when, when it was kind of an, an, an idea that we would have chapel with the Dodgers and the Angels and the Rams and the Lakers, I was able to walk into the, to the very front office of the, of, the, of the ball clubs, the Dodgers and the Angels, and, and say, Mr. Autry, Mr. O'Malley, we'd love to have chapel in your, on Sundays at the ballpark, if you would allow us. And both of them said, it was almost, it was ironic. It, it, they said, well, since you were a former angel or since you were a former Dodger, it's okay with us if it's okay with the manager. And so I went to Walt Austin, who I sat for, and I went to, uh, uh, I think it was Rigney. Who, John, who, uh, you, you probably wouldn't know in, in the way back then who was the manager of the angels. I don't think it was Rigney, but I can't remember right now. I can't remember. I have to look that up. But I went to both of them. They both knew me, asked if we could do it, and we did. My point is, for the seven years I was in ministry, I, because it was the Angels, because it was the Dodgers, because it was the Rams, I got Chuck Swindoll to come and speak. I got Chuck Smith to come and speak. I got Johnny MacArthur to come and speak. I got Dave Hawking back in those days to come and speak. I mean, when I asked those guys to speak, I wasn't asking them to go speak to some group of people that they never heard of. I was saying, come to Dodger Stadium, give you free tickets for you and your family, give you free food. All you have to do is share Christ with the players before the chapel service. Man, they couldn't wait to come, to come and sit in the dugout and to meet all these guys. It was really a great deal. And so I asked the young men who come and ask me to want to be a pastor, I said, are you willing to, to just sit for seven years and, and, and not do anything? All I did was introduce those great speakers. As a matter of fact, on one of the trips on the way home with one of the guys, I said to him, I said, man, I'd love to be able to do what you did. I'd love to one day be able to uh, uh, speak to the players like that. And he, and I said to him, I'd love to be like you. Uh, that's basically that's what I said. And he pulled the car over to the side of the curb and he said, don't ever limit yourself again. Don't ever try to be someone else. God has a special plan for you. He says, as a matter of fact, I think you ought to start speaking. You're ready. And those guys look upon you. I look at them. They look upon you as their spiritual leader. You ought to be speaking to them. And so it wasn't until, I think, another six years, 13 years, before I was asked if I would consider being a senior pastor. And so I look at those young men and I say, are you willing to wait 13 years or 15 years? Are you willing to do whatever it is that you've been asked to do right now until the Lord God opens the door for you? You see, waiting upon the Lord, in this case, God promised Paul that he would preach the gospel in Rome. Do you remember? Paul was discouraged. He was, his life was being threatened by the Sanhedrin and the Jews. And they wanted to take his life. And the Lord God appeared to him in chapter 23, verse 11, and said, Take courage, Paul. So as you have preached here in Jerusalem, so you are going to um, preach the gospel in Rome. 
And yet Paul is enduring two years in prison and waiting for Felix to decide his fate. And during these two years in custody, all Paul could do was what any of us could do, and that is trust in his God that God will see to it that he will do with Paul as he so wishes when he so desires. And so I ask myself a question and I throw it out to you maybe to think about. What do you do when it comes to the issue of waiting on God? Do you become anxious, angry, frustrated? Do you become discouraged? Or do you know that God's going to cause all things to work together for good to those of us who love Him? To those of us who are called according to His purpose? Are you at peace while you are waiting? You see, few things are going to test you and me, our patience and our faith, more than when we are forced to wait upon the Lord our God. Which explains, perhaps, perhaps, why God often puts us in situations where we have no other choice but to wait and to see what His hand is going to do for us and through us. That brings us to chapter 25. I wanted to talk about our waiting on the Lord. Festus, as we're going to see, was no more responsible than Felix. And soon he is going to turn everything over to King Agrippa. Read with me chapter 25. Really, it's a glorious narrative of what has taken place. And I want you to note, two years have passed, and the Jewish people, as you're going to see in verse 3, have never lost their passion to kill Paul. Verse 1, Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. They were urging him, him being Festus, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill Paul on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, Let the influential men among you go there with me. If there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said in verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had concurred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. 
Verse 13, Now after several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation upon him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And so after they had assembled there, assembled here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man, Paul, to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting. Verse 19, But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. He says in verse 20, Being at a loss of how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. That's to Rome. Verse 22, And Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. And Festus said to him, Tomorrow you shall hear him. Now that's an interesting thing. We stop there because there is enough to carry on and to to understand about this narrative. Just of, of this whole idea of how Paul is still in jail, still hated by the Jews, so much so they've not lost their passion. They still want to ambush and put him to death. If they can't do it by trial, they want to do it by ambush. And they hate him. And for what reason? Well, in verse 19, Festus says to King Agrippa, here's what I think they're saying. They have some some points of disagreement about him on their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul says he's alive. And so this is what they come against Paul for. This is the reason they want him dead. And what you and I are going to see is how God's hand moves. Not only in their lives, because Scripture is good for this, not only in the lives of the Sanhedrin and Festus and uh, King Agrippa and Bernice. And by the way, Agrippa and Bernice are a pair to draw to. Boy, they are really something. Wait till you see. And here they are, all before Paul. What I want to say to you is this. I want to go over this really badly with you. I want to study this place in Scripture, but I cannot wait. I wish today was next was next Sunday. I, I do, because next Sunday, if you have a friend that maybe you've been kind of desiring to bring to church and you want them to hear the message of, of the gospel, next week... Paul is going to present one of the greatest messages that has ever been written down. It is pure and simple. Phenomenal. And I'm going to show you at the end of this service so that you and I will be ahead of those that didn't come next week. We're going to know a little something they don't know. I'll show you that at the end of this message. But let's first take a look at this place and see how it all unfolds before Paul stands before King Agrippa and all the people of prominence in uh, the area of Caesarea and uh, the surrounding areas as well. Let's pray.
please. Dear Father, uh, a long introduction, I know, but Lord, I, I, I just want us to catch the flavor of what you're doing in Paul's life so that we might maybe more comprehend some of the things you do in our own lives. Sometimes we become impatient, and, and yet we need to take a look at Paul. Sometimes we, we lose our, our, our drive and our passion. But we need to take a look at Paul. He, he never lost faith. He never lost his passion, even though you, you confined him for a, a couple of years. When he was turned loose, he was just on fire, Father, for his love for you through your son. I pray the same for us. I pray that we would understand the seriousness of what we what we trust and believe in and the seriousness of this call upon our lives, each of us. We need to believe with all of our hearts that you cause everything to work, come together for good. You, you cause these things to happen to those of us who love you, to those of us who are called according to what you want to do in and through our lives, your purpose, not ours. So open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we might, we might uh, behold wonderful things from the words that we've just read, your law. Move me aside, I beg of you, Father. Let us, let us not see so much who is speaking, but rather what we're speaking and who we're speaking about. So bless us, please, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as I've already said, probably enough already. This is a narrative. It's, it's how Paul got from Festus to King Agrippa. But we also know how the Jews are still anger, just eager to kill Paul. It doesn't matter to them, as it says in verse, nine, uh, verse 3, it doesn't matter if they do it by a trial or if they just ambush him. They just want Paul dead. Not much has changed in these two years. And, 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 the, and the, the truth of the matter is, what has Paul done so terrible to these people. He's disrupted some of their beliefs, but he can't disrupt. I mean, he cannot disrupt their beliefs. He just brings logic to what they're thinking to make them think. That made them angry. And then he just simply said, this, this one whom you call Jesus, who you say is dead, he's not. He's alive. There is a resurrection from the dead for life, for those who will trust and believe in him. And for that, they want to kill him. We've seen Paul before the mob in Jerusalem. We see him before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, Drusilla, Festus, and a little bit later, King Agrippa and Bernice. He appeared before just common folks and before kings and rulers. And look look at chapter 9. I want you to see another thing that is chapter 9 of Acts. I want you to see another thing that's really important to this whole idea of Paul. Paul was going to Damascus, chapter 9 of the book of Acts. The Lord knocks him off of his donkey. He goes blind. He tells him to go into, into Damascus in a street called Straight. And he says, wait there. Someone's going to lay hands on you and you're going to regain your sight. Okay. Paul's waiting. In Acts chapter 9... The Lord comes before a guy, a certain disciple by the name of Ananias. says, Ananias, I want you to go to a street called Straight. Look for a guy named Saul. Lay your hands on him. He's going to regain his sight. But Ananias says to the Lord, Lord, 
we've heard much about this man, how he has made people suffer, how he has killed those who have followed you, put those in prison who have followed you. Basically, Ananias is reasoning with Jesus Christ, saying, is this really a good idea? And Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 15, some of the most miraculous words that you and I can ever hear because it's not said just for Paul. It's said for every single one of us who have ever trusted in Jesus Christ. He says to him, Go. Go, he says. For he is, what? A chosen instrument of mine. Think it through. I mean, I've said to you this before. I'm sure you remember, but think it through. Paul has all this time is doing nothing but harm, killing innocent people, putting innocent people in jail. And yet God says, Jesus Christ says, he's a chosen instrument of mine. And then he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer and bear my name, Jesus said to Ananias, before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. By the way, don't leave Acts 9. When did all of this persecution start in the life of Paul? I'm here to say to you, it started the moment he trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. Look, look at verse 21 of that same chapter. He's still in Damascus, and it's saying about Paul, all those who heard Paul continued to be amazed and were saying... Is not he, talking about Paul, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, namely the name of Jesus, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? It says in verse 22, though, but Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. This is so ironic. Here's this guy that wanted to kill everyone who believed in Jesus Christ. Now he's giving his life for those who don't know Jesus Christ to come to believe in him. And he is so intelligent. He is confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus in verse 22, proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. When this is taking place in verse 23, it says many days had elapsed. The Jews plotted together to do away with him, Paul. Verse 24, their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. From the very beginning of Paul's life as a believer in Jesus Christ, he dealt with persecution, he dealt with trials, he dealt with heartaches. And you and I, folks, have no reason to expect any less from our lives or to complain when trials come our way. You see, today, within our, our faith, those that call themselves Christians, and man, are we not seeing a gamut of, of, of messages and things that are being said to those who call themselves Christians? What is being taught from the pulpit? Well, a lot of people teach you and me when we first come to Christ. If you come to Christ... All of your troubles are going to be wiped away. As a matter of fact, with enough faith, with enough faith, if you're sick, you can get well. With enough faith, if you're having a hard time financially, God will give you all the money you want. That's a lie from the very pit of hell. 
The truth of the matter is, when you and I come to Jesus Christ, the one thing that we can probably expect is trials, difficulties, heartaches. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't. But I'll bet you if I... I always do that, don't I? I go to gambling. I promise you, I never gamble. It's just a... It's just a I just say that. I don't gamble. But I, I, my guess is that most of us would raise our hand to say when we became a Christian, trials hit us. And then you start to feel like if that happens and you've been taught that you, with enough faith everything will be fine, then when that happens you'll start thinking, what's wrong with me? I don't have enough faith. I must be a terrible believer. No, on the contrary. You're in very good company with the Apostle Paul and all of those who loved the Lord. There were martyrs left and right. And so you need to understand that, and so do I. Let's go back to Acts chapter 25, please. Festus has spent 8 to 10 days in Jerusalem. And what we see in verses 6 through 12 is that he immediately goes back to Caesarea. For this, I'll give him credit. He put Paul on trial right away. This is the fourth time now, fourth time that Paul is standing before either the Sanhedrin or the Roman court and Still, as it says here, they could not prove any guilt upon this man, Paul. So, Festus figuring, maybe I'll have a better shot at this if we take him to Jerusalem. So he says in verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, not Paul. He asks Paul if he wishes to go to Jerusalem and be tried there. To which Paul says immediately in verses 10 and 11, No way, Jose. I am not going to Jerusalem. He knew that he would not get a fair trial there. And he also remembered what his nephew told him. He, Paul didn't forget. Neither would you, neither would I. If somebody was having an ambush to kill us, we wouldn't want to necessarily go back there. And so he says, I want to be tried before Caesar. I am a Roman citizen. I deserved to be tried before Caesar. And so Festus says in verse 12, To Caesar you'll go. Now Paul must have rejoiced at the thought of that because Caesar is in Rome. And that's where Paul is driving to go to. He was told by God, you are also not only going to share about me in Jerusalem, but you're going to also share about me in Rome. Take courage, Paul. But I stop here and I thought for a moment too. What is it, who is to say Paul doesn't know any more than, 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 than what he's been told to go to Rome? Who's to say that, that Paul might not be thinking, gosh, when I go to Rome, that might be it. That's all the Lord said I was going to do. I'm going to Rome. Maybe then my life is over with. Maybe then it's, it's, I'm through. Because Jesus said, take courage, Paul. As you solemnly witnessed for my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness for me in in Rome also. But he, he didn't say anything beyond that. I thought about that too. I think about things when I study the Bible. I think about it. What if what if the Lord said to you and me, We only have a certain amount of time left. Just this is it, maybe. This is it. This is the last year that I'm going to draw breath. What what would I want to do with my life? Neil, how much more would you love Diane? I I assume you love her a lot. If you don't, you're crazy. 
Have you ever looked in the mirror? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I know him very well. That is the pot calling the kettle black. But if you only had a short time left, how much more time would you spend with her? David, how about you with your wife? How about how much time? How much more would you love your family, your neighbors, your friends? How much more would you go out and tell them about Christ if you knew that your time was short? The truth of the matter is, folks, you and I don't have any guarantee about how long our life is. Why not use today to tell your wife how much you love her? Let your husband know how much you care for him. How about today that you tell your loved ones? Last night when I gave this message, it was, it, was like a, it was like a gold mine was sitting right here where you're sitting because John Grant was sitting there. You don't, might not know John Grant, but he's 92 years old. And so I walked to him. I said, John, and his wife Beverly's not well, but she, she's getting better, but she can't quite come to church yet. And I said, John, I said, if you only had a little bit more time, I said, how old are you? And he said, 92. And everybody went, oh. You know, they applauded. And I said, if, if you only had a little bit of time left, how much more would you love Beverly? I said, how long have you two been married? And he said, 68 years. And I said, would you love her more tomorrow? And he said, you bet. How much more can we do if we don't know what much time we have left? I think some of us are letting days pass by, just days pass by, where we're not really doing the things that God is caring for us to do, whatever that might be. And so Paul must have rejoiced that he was going to go to Rome to see Caesar. But somewhere deep in here, he must have thought, maybe this is it. Maybe this is my last stop. In verses 13 to 22, King Agrippa and his sister, that's his sister, Bernice. He stole her away from a king. He brought her in. Whether they were married or not, it didn't say, but they are living together. This scoundrel. He and Bernice were two very, very devious people that ruled their area. And what you're going to see is... Festus knew that he was somebody else because the way he treats him, when we're going to see at the end of this message, you'll see. So King Agrippa and his sister Bernice come to Caesarea to visit with Festus. And Festus says, you won't believe what I've got here. What I've got here is a guy by the name of Paul. Had him here from Felix, left him in jail. He's been in jail two years because some Jews in Jerusalem hate his guts. They want him dead. And all that I can find out that he did is in verse 19. He has some disagreement with their religion and this certain dead man who's called Jesus, who he says is alive. Now you can see just as clearly as I can, Paul faithfully shared Christ with Felix with Festus, and he's going to do the same next week. You'll see with King Agrippa and Bernice and a lot of more people in that community. Verse 22 is a key verse. King Agrippa has heard about this guy named Paul. Everybody had, really. And King Agrippa says to Festus, 
I would love to hear this guy myself. He uses, they use, in here, an imperfect tense of a word that says, I would like. It is B-O-U-L-O-M-A-I. It suggests that King Agrippa had been longing, I mean, just, I don't know how more to say it. He, he cannot wait to meet this guy named Paul and to hear what he has to say. He wants to hear, as anybody would, about this guy who died. And yet Paul says there's a lot of people who saw him alive. Paul is saying these words and, and, and King Agrippa... See, they didn't have TV. They didn't have, you know, uh, uh, Fox News or CNN or you can see everything around the world. They, 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 this has been great entertainment for King Agrippa and Bernice to hear from this guy named Paul who is as the Jews have said, has turned the world upside down. Can't wait to hear about him. He wants to hear about this man called Jesus who is supposedly dead, but Paul says he's alive. I want to hear. You see, don't you, the issue of our faith has always been and will always be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the one common thing that Peter, Stephen, Philip, Paul, all of them preached the resurrection. The resurrection is everything to you and my faith. That's why I tell people on Easter Sunday, those that visit, you know, and don't normally come to church often, but come on Easter, I tell them for us here at this church, Easter is every week. Easter is a, is a celebration for us to believe in the risen Savior whom we love and whom we worship and who will, he says, take away our sins. And because He has risen from the dead, He says He will give us life. And so what we come to see now after verse 22, after, after Agrippa says, I, I want to see this guy myself. And so Festus says, you will. He says, tomorrow you'll hear from him. And then in verse 23 to 27, which I won't get into much because I want you to hear it next week so much. We're going to see the fifth time now that Paul comes before the Roman court and the, and the Sanhedrin and the people of prominence. And this time, look what it says. Let me just give you a little hint. Look, look at verse 23. On the next day, here's what Festus did. When Agrippa came together with Bernice, admit, admit great pomp. I mean, it is like, it is, everybody is dressed to the max. You think they were going to the, the Oscars and walking down a red carpet or something. It is pomp and pompous. They are there. And they entered into the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and by the prominent people of the city at the command of Festus. Paul was brought into the mix. Can you imagine Paul thinking, this is cool. I've, I'm, all I have to do is come show up. They've got me a built-in audience. And the message he's going to gift is, is monumental. But here's what has taken place. Watch, watch this. It is amazing. Festus and King Agrippa, without knowing it, are fulfilling prophecy of the Word of God. They're bringing the kings. They're bringing the prominent people together for Paul to speak to them. 
Paul is to appear before kings and Paul is to go to Rome just as the Lord has said. And this is so important. What we see here is that God will use whomever He wishes, whenever He wishes, and whatever He wishes to do to accomplish His purpose. And He used Festus and King Agrippa, two unsaved people, to fulfill prophecy. Think about it. Think about it as we close. Wouldn't it be better for you and for me to be used by our Lord willingly rather than accomplish what He wishes in spite of ourselves? Listen, I've said this a million times. No, that's that's an exaggeration. I've said this so often. I've said over and over again, if God has something for this church, and I am certain He has, I don't know exactly yet what it is, but I know He's going to do something with us. And if we dig in our heels and don't do what God wants us to do, He will accomplish His purpose. More than likely, He'll go somewhere else to use people who are willing to be used by Him and they will steal your and my blessings. And I ask you and I beg of you, don't let them do that. There is so much that God wants to do in and through our lives. All right, let me give you just a quick sneak peek. Just a quick one. Paul gives this message. And look at verse 28 in chapter 26. King Agrippa looks at Paul. And Paul, he says, if you don't stop, you're going to convince me to come to Christ. No, watch what he says. Let me read it verbatim. Here's what he says to him in verse 28. In a short time, Paul, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. That's how powerful Paul's message is. He's grabbed the heart of Agrippa and he is literally janking it out of itself. He's saying, stop, Paul. If you don't stop, you're going to persuade me to be a Christian. And what does Paul say in verse 29? Oh, king, oh, king, if whether it is in a short time or whether it's in a long time, Oh, that you and everyone who hears my message will become like I am, except for these doggone chains. What a message he's going to give. You just won't want to miss it. Next week is power-packed because Paul pours his heart out before these men of prominence and this king, knowing that God said, you are going to speak to kings and you are going to proclaim my name. And Paul is not going to let this moment pass because he doesn't know how many more days he has. And neither do you and neither do I. Shame on us if we let days go by without doing whatever it is that God has called us to do. Take a look at the financial picture of this church. Right now, we're, we're tightening our belts as much as we know how, and we're trying to make things work. We shouldn't be a church that has to beg for money. We won't. We haven't. But I am right now, maybe, huh? I don't know. But summer's coming. Some of you are going on vacation doesn't mean that we don't stop turning off the lights and on the lights and the air conditioning when you're not here. We need finances then just as much as now. You need to get together with yourselves and see how you need to make an impact in this church for the cause of Christ in this community in which we live. That's as much as I want to say about that. But for those of us who are waiting, 
and wondering what's God doing with our life, I want you to know something. He's not letting days go by just aimlessly. He's got a plan for you. He's going to cause all of this to work together for good to those of us who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All He asks us to do is to humble ourselves under His mighty hand so that at the proper time, He will exalt us. In the meantime, we need to cast our cares upon Him, knowing that He cares for us. In all of this, don't let somebody steal our blessings. Let's serve the Lord with all of our hearts. Let's use this time, this precious time that we have been given to honor the Lord our God. Boy, I love you folks. Have I ever told you how much I love you? I love you so much, it's hard to put into words. Thank you for allowing me to do what I do. Father, thank you for I know it comes from you. I ask your blessings upon us as we uh, leave this place. Wherever you might take us, would you, Father, allow us to just kind of hear your voice and think about what it is that you care for and what you want from us. And may we, like Paul, live our days as if it's the last, as if this is it, so that we can pour our, our, out our hearts before you and and maybe by the grace of an almighty God, maybe, Father, we could collectively hear, well done, well done, my good and faithful servants. Let us hear those words, Father, one day. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love you all so much. Have a great day. It's a beautiful day out there, I hear. Have a great day.